Error and mistakes are unfortunately part of everybody's clinical practice, as we're only human. If you don't think you've ever made a mistake, then you've probably just not realised it. Accepting this happens, being open when it does, and sharing learning around mistakes is a key tenet of reflective practice, and we think the marker of a good clinician. This month we're speaking to a special guest about making errors, ambulance service culture, and how we can stay safe in practice. And this month's episode, you may notice, sounds ever so slightly different. That's because we recorded this some time ago, hoping to do a bit of a mini-series looking at this subject. But we weren't able to get all of the other guests and podcasts together, and we thought this discussion was just way too good to sit on our hard drives, not released. And uh, apologies for the sound quality, we were using our old microphones when this was recorded, but hopefully the discussion and the things that Andy has to say more than speak for themselves. And having just listened to this podcast in the in the edit, I really think this is a good discussion. I really think Andy's quite inspirational in his ability to so clearly still be in love with the job after however many years he's he's now been qualified. And I think we can all learn a lot, not only from the wisdom and experience that he imparts in this podcast, but also from the passion that he has for being a paramedic. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Okay, so hello and welcome to a slightly different style of podcast. And what we're looking at now is assuring yourself or improving professional practice and, and, and looking that, at, at that as a, as a subject. So this evening I'm, I'm joined by Simon, who you all know very well. Say hello, Simon. Hi, everyone. <laughs> uh, and we've got a, a special guest on who um, I'm going to let introduce himself. So uh, Andy, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your background and, and who you are. Thank you. Good evening, gents. Um, so my name's Andy Collin. Um, my day job, I'm a consultant paramedic uh, with C-Camps at Southeast Coast. Uh, I also have a job in primary care, um, quite an active member of the paramedic community. So I've done some work with the College of Paramedics over the years uh, on independent prescribing. Um, I've done some some writing. Uh, I've got a book out on decision making. Uh, what else have I done? Gosh, um, I spent a couple of years with the healthcare safety investigation branch as a national investigator. So I got really interested in, in safety science and, and system design. Um, and uh, yeah, I enjoy uh, being being a clinician and I'm very grateful to uh, to be invited to uh, to chat with you tonight. And thank you so much for coming along. Um, as we were, we were sort of saying off air, what we're hoping to get from these series of podcasts is to really draw out all of that really beneficial learning that often took place in the crew room, hence the name, um, and just tease out some really interesting educational points from from some really interesting discussions with with people like yourself, Andy. And um, you said something that I think is is probably what all of our hope is from this podcast uh, off air, which was, well, do you mind talking through what, what you think your hope's for for this conversation or, or what you want to get out of this conversation is going to be yeah what your sort of ted talk is <laughs> yeah if uh, yeah this is probably the closest i'll ever get to uh, being invited to give a ted talk um, <laughs> but yeah i i just i guess you know i've had 30 plus years in healthcare and you know, the majority of that in the ambulance service i've made mistakes i've been treated badly early in my career i've i've um, i've been blamed and and I watch the culture change and the improvements I try to make and the influence that we try and have as, as senior uh, clinical leads. But my lived experience currently is I still see uh, a workforce, particularly the junior workforce, uh, new into the profession who are, are still anxious. They still worry about making errors. They, they worry about consequence. And, you know, fundamentally, our role as paramedics it should be joyful it's it's a great job doesn't matter where you're practicing be it um you know in in what's perceived as the traditional role on an ambulance whether you're moving into the the more novel or which aren't really novel anymore but the, the the other mainstream practice settings primary care ed hospice or people that are working in offshore power generation event medicine uh, expedition medicine um it's a joy when you're at the patient's side, be that physically or virtually, 
I would love to see our profession just be able to approach every day and every patient encounter for, with the the outcome for them being a really good experience um, that translates into a good patient experience that leaves no baggage. And, and you know, if things do go wrong, that they're treated fairly, they'll be learning and, uh, you know, we we just move out of, of the, the blame culture. And, you know, without getting too ranty early on in the podcast, I, I think fundamentally the pledge is there. I think the infrastructure, the intent is there to not blame but I still think we see those little transactions, those little micro blames happening, poor choice of language, poor approach to to investigations, um, and so yeah, that's um, that would that's kind of become my uh, my motivation. Obviously, as a clinician, I love to. You know, I'm actually out clinically. I you know I am the caregiver, but I I think the clinical leadership roles now for us all have to focus more on caring for the carers. And that, that does seem to be the experience on social media and when you speak to student paramedics and, 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 you know, even some experienced paramedics, they worry about blame. They worry about that culture. And actually, I think the more experienced I've got, the less I've kind of worried about that. I don't know whether that's me being really naive, but I, I agree with you, Andy. I think that actually... We, we focus our practice in the right way and we get the right culture and we can embed those principles within an organization, then actually we have less to fear. So I think that's kind of what we're going to be, be talking about, how, how you can feel safe in your practice, which is what we want, because in order to give the patient the best care possible, we have to feel safe uh, to practice ourselves and the patient has to be the center of the care. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more and you know without sort of jumping too far ahead and I, you know, I've got a real interest in kind of system design and and looking at failure from a from a systemic perspective and the, the irony is that if you're worried about mistakes you're worried about consequence and and maybe even people that sort of go on that catastrophizing journey where their their worry is disproportionate that narrowing of the bandwidth is that sort of classic human factor um, and so you're more likely uh, to make a, an error so it's in everyone's interest to keep that cognitive bandwidth as unimpeded as possible. It's um, it, it's certainly a challenge, um, but I think we it's in reach. What we're going to try and achieve is is turning the pledge into action, and importantly, getting um, our colleagues to to believe in it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the like you say, the the language has been changing for a long time, and this uh, the, the whole notion of just cultures and trying to move away from a blame culture has has definitely been a topic of conversation and something that has been something that NHS managers have been aware of for a while certainly I think since I've come into practice do you know why paramedics are so fearful of of mistakes because it does seem like we are a profession that has a huge amount of responsibility but we still seem to have a People regularly say, don't they, oh, I'm not going to bet my mortgage on that and, and, oh, yeah, I think this is the right choice, but I'm not going to put my house on it. And we seem to have a very unique attitude towards mistakes in the ambulance service compared to other areas of practice and, and, and perhaps our medical colleagues. Is it obvious to you why that's still the case? I wish it was obvious. And I think it needs us to, to dive more deeply into the problem. I, it's certainly multifactorial and I think it also varies by clinician there are some paramedics who I speak to you know uh, even new grads or people in, in the early years of their career who are really confident they've got a real really good bead on on where they sit in the system and, and that really encourages me that you know people are sort of opening their eyes and ears to to what the future looks like but I still think overwhelmingly the the, the problem we have without being critical of, of either the employers or the educators, I, I still hear perhaps poorly chosen language among educators who use what sound like sort of jovial throwaway comments around, don't forget it's your registration on the line. And you hear that for three years in your undergraduate program. When you're on placement, you're in the crew room and you're overhearing co conversations about the guy that was suspended, the guy that was sacked. Well, you know, the context is, is absolutely key here. Uh, look at what people actually get into trouble for. 
you know, either at an employer level or a regulatory level. They aren't isolated errors. But I think it's a, it's a bit like I, I liken it to um, uh, 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 referral pathways. If you try once and mm. you get rebuffed, it's unlikely you'll try again. And that's a whole other topic about how we uh, encourage paramedics to make referrals and keep trying and actually understand that a failed referral is a normal part of practice. But it's a similar thing. You know, we tried it once. It didn't work. We didn't try again. And I think people get wind of trouble. They can smell trouble. They understand someone's been suspended. And actually, to be fair to the management side, we don't get the opportunity to because why would we? It's not it's not reasonable to share that information. But but we there's no mechanism for sharing the context of why someone is going through a process. But and certainly in terms of fitness to practice, um, there is a, a definite profile of, of people who fall foul of, of their of their published standards. And, and I guess you know the, the the sort of boil down thing is you know if you drop a mug in the kitchen or you you make an isolated error even if that error it moves into kind of um sort of rule-based errors or or even violations and you know we can talk about that sort of those sorts of concepts in in more detail later perhaps but you know if, if you approach your your role with the best of intent that you're not reckless uh and and you're not intentionally negligent or or you're you're intending to harm then you should have nothing to worry about. The, the, the notion of people that, that there are people who in, in healthcare who, who have intended to cause harm, you know, an in, intended act with an intended consequence. And then these are the, you know, the Beverly Alex, the, the Harold Shipman, you know, these are, these are big names. You know, if, if you make an isolated error, you're not in the same universe, let alone ballpark. And people that are, are just negligent who know they're doing something wrong and don't really give thought, you know, to the, to the, the potential consequences of that that that's that's another aspect of it there's there's malicious intent there's also deliberate negligence absolutely ambulance services are actually very good in some ways and probably superior in to other sectors in some ways around authority scope of practice um so you know and also with our our um, hcpc standards so you know the our kind of rule rule set for, for want of a better word and and, and our practice guidance are, are there um, to, to be seen so this is the stuff isn't hidden so actually we don't see people you know it's very unusual to see um intentionally negligent practice we can be candid about this you know the, the sort of stuff that we sadly do see you know it, it is the stuff that borders on on criminality and uh, inappropriate conduct and and but of course people see they see the kind of the the, the macro not the micro uh, or even the meta, so they see the concept of, of being in trouble uh, as encapsulating um, too broad a spectrum, when in reality, it's actually really granular. And I, I always encourage my students um, to go and look at the HCPC website and search for paramedics that have been struck off. The fitness to practice process might not be perfect, it might be prolonged, and it might cause stress, which isn't great, and that needs some work, which I know the college has been looking into, which is good. But actually, when you look at people that have been struck off, there is usually a reason for it. And I have never, to this date, found a case of isolated clinical error where someone has been struck off. And I search them every year so I can keep that statement afresh. You are right, Andy. It's always people that have had professional misconduct it's always uh broken the law or um you know theft of of drugs or um lied uh falsified paperwork or been you know kind of discriminatory or um inappropriate towards colleagues or patients it's never about a clinical decision yeah. or, or a clinical uh, like an isolated clinical decision it's always about you know, at the most, it will be a, a competence over a prolonged period of time. But even those, they, they, there's there's lots of opportunity to to remedy action when you read. So I'd encourage people to read through the cases, and you'll start to see, and you'll start to realise that actually, most of us, in fact, all of us that are responsible paramedics, would never dream of doing the things that these people are accused of and are found mm. out to have done. And therefore, actually, that in itself can start to make you feel calmer uh, and more relaxed and less likely you're going to lose your registration as everyone puts the fear of god into you that actually it doesn't happen it you know for for a clinical mistake yeah obviously it takes it takes a long time doesn't it to 
to change people's attitudes and this stuff isn't going to happen overnight. And I guess in the grand scheme of a lot of the paramedics and the ambulance service, a, a lot of this conversation is is still quite new. So there's probably an element of the proof needs to be in the pudding and, and with time things will improve. I also think us as clinicians at the at the front end though have a re, a pretty important responsibility um to help change this this feeling and this culture and to me that seems that lies with with being open about our mistakes as well and that's something that is is very uh quite common in 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 sort of doctors uh, practice and our medical colleagues pro- practice being very open about mistakes and so I'm trying my best to um to, to be open with people about my mistakes and, and talk about them I was speaking to a student today about probably one of the biggest mistakes I made in my career early on which uh, people that know me I'll, I'll happily tell them about when I when I almost left a stroke at home because of a lack of knowledge and various biases and you can de- deconstruct it and, and all of that um, but the root of me sharing that story is one there's, there's learning in how I came to make that mistake but actually once I uh, recognized the error took the patient to hospital and had a conversation with someone who was quite a junior manager who uh, I was really nervous and was like oh do I have to datex myself what needs to uh, what needs to happen? Do I need to, you know, hold my hands up and, and all of that? And, and actually, we had a really common sensible discussion. He said, you, you know, we talked through the errors. I'd done duty of candor and all of that with the patient. So it, it didn't go any further than than that. Well, look, well, um, the error you've just made there is that you use datix as a verb rather than a noun. But that's <laughs> uh, it's a learning point. But um, but it, but it's, it's it's part of that culture. Um, yeah, I think it's people's perception of where the error lies as well. So, so what is the detection, or what what is the what is the event? And I think what I see often is people anxious in a range of kind of modalities, so, so to, or a range of, of aspects of the patient's care journey, um, rather than what I think is the, is the correct bit. So, you know, I think we hold ourselves far too highly around diagnostic certainty and the diagnostic burden. So getting the diagnosis wrong is not the error. Failing a psychomotor skill is not an error or a mistake. You know, you could say it's a skill-based error. So if you miss a cannula or, or whatever, whatever it is, or you, you know, you put, put a splint on upside down, the error in those sort of different contexts is, well, you know, have you created a reasonable range of differential diagnoses have you considered the red flags have you considered how to inform the patient correctly make sure they have capacity and understand what the other differentials are and actually our working diagnosis might be might not be correct you might get worse and if you see these problems how do you, how are they safety netted how do you make sure they're connected back into the system because uh, you know i know you know both within my organization this is a, na- a national problem the detection of an unsafe discharge far too often it, it sits with the coroner that's far too distal you know so we need to make detection much more much more proximal so so th- those are the errors and i and i still and i do hear this a lot that people are worried about missing something and i hear that a lot you know what if i miss something doctors miss things in fact doctors don't always approach the the clinical encounter with any confidence that they're going to solve what it is there and then um you know the, the we're a bit isolated i think in the ambulance sector in particular i mean from my gp role um you know, a lot of what happens is sort of watchful waiting. It's um, you know, trying something. Does that work? Uh, making sure that the patient is empowered to take control of their own health care and get back in touch. Um, so, so the ambulance sector is quite paternalistic as well. So you know, there's all these concepts that, that I think conspire to, to put a burden on our staff that is disproportionate to what, what we actually need to be providing to our patients in, 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 in that specific regard around success of skills and uh, accuracy of, of diagnostic certainty. And, and, and if you and, and indulge me, so one more point, I mean, one of my sort of hobby horses to a degree is the expertise around ECG readings. 
is there what is the tension and I'm, I'm not saying one one way is right or wrong and i think it's for the profession to decide but should there be a level of understanding of ecgs linked to uh, symptomaticity that is likely to be cardiac in origin and that results in a patient going to hospital where the ecg is not obvious to, that they're going to go to a pci center mindful that some patients who are within the criteria don't have a PCI and they get transferred back to the non-PCI uh, route. But we get we do get a bit bent out of shape when we are perceived to have missed an MI. M- miss it for me, again, personal opinion, not my employer's opinion. For me, missing an MI is leaving someone with chest pain at home. I, I think taking someone to hospital with an equivocal ECG with suggestive signs and symptoms is not missing an MI, it's reaching your capability line in terms of diagnostic ability. And, and, that, and that's not personal ability, that is blood tests, imaging, <laughs> senior opinion, um, and escalating the patient up. But somehow we get ourselves a little bit sort of out of shape thinking that we've missed an MI when we've taken a patient with chest pain to an ED rather than PCI. And the thing is, is that actually in ED, we are exactly the same. There are times when we will differential something or not differential it and actually we find on test results it wasn't that or it was that we'll get surprised troponin results come back and go oh i need to action that and treat this patient for acs i wasn't even thinking that or we'll treat a patient for acs and then we might bounce it off our off a consultant who says yeah that sounds reasonable and then we find out later actually we should have given them a ct because it was a dissection you know, these things happen all the time. It's not just the ambulance service. It's diagnostic uncertainty in primary care, in, in emergency medicine. And and even in as you get into secondary care, the, they have they have time. You know, a lot of medicine is based upon, well, if we keep this patient on the ward for two weeks and we work through concepts, eventually we'll come to a diagnosis because we've had time. But even then, we, we don't always, you know, I, I know patients have been in acute medical wards for weeks and weeks on end and actually still don't have a diagnosis. So I, yeah, I agree. It's not it's not a failing. I think we need to be thinking about formulating differentials so we can form a treatment plan, because that's a responsible thing to do, and not just treat symptoms. But actually, we need to accept that yes, we have limitations, and it's not a failing if we don't necessarily be able to identify everything. I mean, I consider ECGs to be one of my strong points in my practice, but there's still ECGs that I look at, and I'm like, you know what, I don't have a clue what's going on here. Um, but I treat the patient. Is the plan that we're making safe and appropriate, or is it is it risk adverse, or is it too risky? And it's all about risk management. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And there's a whole kind of discussion to be had around around risk management, risk benefit analysis, and an understanding that, with the greatest respect to um, inpatient settings, that they are not benign places to to take certain groups of patients um you know the risk of iatrogenic harm uh, you know is significant it's also not a great experience and and i think the the abdication of responsibility is, is an issue and the perception of some of these very arcane crew room comments around you know uh you'll never get in trouble if you take everyone to hospital well that clearly that's true you're never going to be yeah uh, you know you're never going to be <laughs> funnily, funnily enough the, the the only two patients i've i've ever been to coroner's court with were patients i took to hospital so um it's strange <laughs> i mean you know i never see coroner's court really as a disciplinary thing more as a fact-finding exercise but sorry i interrupted you andy but um but yeah i just thought i'd share that because it was just uh I find it, you know, that people were always worried about leaving people at home and ended up in coroner's court, but never been there from a decision of leaving someone yeah. at home. Well, and, but isn't that always the, another one of the mantras that we hear, you know, always, always put someone and another clinician between yourself and the coroner. And we talk about the joy, the joy of practice. And, and for me, the, the kind of, I mean, I, I use the sort of term, I name one of the chapters in my book, the garden path test which was my own little thing that I developed over the years myself, walking back to the car or the ambulance after leaving someone at home. And even before I'd reached the end of the garden path thinking, what if it was that? Should I have done a standing blood pressure? Should I have done this? Should I, and you just start to catastrophize. So um, the, what I get satisfaction from is having a plan, working through the plan, saying to myself, have I acted reasonably? Uh, and, and the concept, sort of the ethical concept around social justice, 
you know, has this patient had a, enough resource? Have they had sufficient time and attention and skill, uh, you know, to, to say that encounter was, was reasonable? And, and then when we talk about the coronial process, just a slight segue, but you, you, you mentioned um, coroners, and it's one of the things that paramedics really worry about, that you know, link, linking that sort of phrase of putting someone between yourself and the coroner. It's just You're just abdicating your responsibility and not getting the most out of, of those encounters. If you need to refer the patient on or convey the patient or admit the patient, you know, that's part of their pathway of care that's their flow through the system but you know some patients can be discharged on scene some can have a delayed referral and for me particularly in the ambulance sector i don't think we're really making every contact count and i don't think we're empowering patients so we tend to do and it's another sort of strand really we do everything for them when i when i look at what we do in primary care and i'm sure it's the same in, in secondary care um you know, we we tell people what to look out for. We we suggest next steps. You know, call call your your practice over the next day or two and book a routine appointment or book an urgent appointment or go to a dentist, go to an optician or <laughs> whatever it might be. Go go and see the pharmacist. We tend not to do that. We make all the phone calls for them. And I wonder what what's at play in 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 that um, behaviour, for want of a better word. Do you think that comes down to the kind of fear again? Because I agree with you completely. It's like, um, you know, oh, I found this patient who's got high blood pressure. I must phone and interrupt the duty doctor today and speak to them now and refer them face to face. And it has to be as though it's done. Everything has to be done now. Whereas actually, to me, telling a patient, we found that your blood pressure is high. This could just be a, a reading that we happen to have got. But you should follow up with your GP routinely. Yeah and make contact with your surgery yourself is actually sufficient. We're empowering them to take their own healthcare in their own hands. And, and we've given them the advice. As long as that advice is documented, we are there to provide them with our professional opinion, not necessarily to do, as you said, everything for them. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think to some degree that the, the expectation around acuity, I think, is interesting because that hypertension didn't come on half an hour before they phone the ambulance and it's not the reason they phone the ambulance you know there may be a link to the pathology they have but we need to understand again con- the context of of an isolated finding it's a, it's a bit like that you know the blood glucose thing but you know an isolated hypertension as long as it's not you know, ludicrously high and, and would need a you know a bit of support but you're right it's um this is an incidental finding with a patient with a rolled ankle or whatever it is we're seeing them for and empower them say you need to follow this up you know when was the last time you spoke to your gp you know there's lots of of people who are well throughout their life and have limited encounters often will go from the chief complaint that we called for to then sort of turning into almost a screening episode which then turns into a serendipitous finding that then turns into another hour of of phone calls and when we think again, I know it's something I'm thinking about a lot at the moment around social justice, particularly you know with the demands on on the 999 service. And to quote another kind of crew room uh, favourite, which is you know you can only do one job at a time. One thing I learned when I did my my paramedic practitioner course back in the day, in, in sort of the, the, the um, when it was 2005, and uh, I left the ambulance service uh, when I qualified a year or so later, worked at a walk-in centre and within days the the thing that hit me most of the, of the many things that that, that dawned on me the, the reality of, of changing practice setting was as i walked out of the consulting room i glanced to the right through the glass door into the waiting room and i could see all the worried parents i could see the the the, the old guy hobbling in i could see you know the, the the guy with a cut on his head and and these are our waiting patients and and so i've kind of developed this sort of i almost imagine like a sort of a like a roundel it's like an RAF badge type thing, which is, you know, absolutely the focus you should have is on the patient you're with, but you need to be aware of the patients that are waiting. And and then the third layer is you've got to be cognizant of the population you're serving because any one of those people could become a patient who is waiting or the next patient you're with. So there's got to be something about how you see yourself as a resource and realizing that you can't, we can't continue to work in the way we're working taking on all those tasks on behalf of the patient at the expense of empowering them so it's not this is not an ambulance manager talking about saving time and 
you know, trying to improve performance. This is uh, a, a really meaningful thing that we are supposed to be doing uh, as healthcare providers, which is making every contact count and, and, and empowering patients to, to, to help them determine their own their own healthcare. So there's a huge a number of dimensions. You know, this is why this, these conversations are, are really complex, and it's going to take a lot of uh, of time to understand um, as a profession. You know, where where we need to place ourselves in that regard. It, it's really tricky, isn't it? Because I, I definitely think a large element of of the oh well, I'll call the GP for you, and I'll make the appointment is a for, is a type of defensive practice isn't it and i i say that as somebody yeah. who absolutely has done that because it feels so much better to have done a three-minute discussion with someone who is probably way too rushed off their feet to uh to, to properly give the the conversation credence but it, it makes you feel a lot better doesn't it and it makes you f- feel like that plan is is yeah. so much more robust yeah. when probably that isn't true shared decision making is it really and uh no, no. yeah it's, it's very difficult because, because there's also probably an element there that uh, and i've definitely done this as well is coming back to the point that you made earlier andy a lot of times the only times that paramedics and, and nqps in particular get feedback about patients is either if they're lucky enough to know somebody at the hospital that they can approach them if they take them in or if it goes to coroners and there's a huge black spot isn't there between those between those urgent care patients of the spectrum that that we get no feedback on and actually a conversation even if it is a three-minute conversation with the gp is probably the only way that you can extract true learning from that case quite quite possibly you'll be surprised to hear i have a i have an opinion on the on feedback I have, a, I have an opinion on everything, uh, but I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. The and, and this is a slight tangent to, to the point we're making, but but on feedback, you know, we're desperate to know whether what we did was successful. So, did did the Roscoe Hospital survive to discharge? What was the trauma patient's ISS? You know, where did they go? You know, was their chest clear? You know, have they have what's their you know what are their scans looking like? And and do you know what? I think we'll always be able to however legitimate or not our relationship with that information is we we will find you know, we tend to find out don't we we'll bump into the hems crew a week later or we, we will find out about those, those big decisions the the bit that we don't seem to ask for is how do i stack up data wise or performance wise so how many of my abdo pains get admitted how many? You know, how many of my? What's my conveyance rate or my mission rate for back pain versus my, my contemporaries? And there's vast amounts of data out there that I think the, particularly as we move into the, the ICS ICB um, environment where we could get much more data that's really meaningful, help us to learn, because conveyance rates are are one one measure, conversion to admission, inpatient spell. And, and all that stuff, that has data that, that we can source, would be a really rich um, uh, seam of, of feedback, which we could do in an anonymous way. So we wouldn't have to worry about the consent because that's the, the real headache to get you know, individual level patient feedback is is the consent model. And I don't think we'll ever achieve that unless there's a change in the law that legitimizes our relationship with the patient's outcome data. That could be years when there's some amazing work being done with things like paramedic post box and fem feedback. Uh, and they, they are doing it the right way um, and they're making great, great strides. But, you know, I think we should be giving our, our colleagues much more of that HES data because hospitals capture how they arrive. They arrive by ambulance. They can code it. We can compare our diagnosis codes with, with the final diagnosis codes. You know, we can do a lot more triangulation. And I think that might be a really helpful learning point. It's just an opinion. But um, it, I, it's one of those things that I mull over. You know, why, why do we need to know? It's understandable that we want to know, you know how that child who had a fit got on. We want to know how, you know, how the, the stroke patient did. But wouldn't it be great to know actually how we're performing? Because if we understand how we're performing in terms of our risk culture our risk stratification so if we're taking too much to hospital that doesn't need to be there we can then learn reinforce understand how to manage and mitigate the risk and it's probably i don't know if it's reasonable to say from my personal perspective i find those diagnostic conundrums in some ways as or if not more satisfying 
than dealing with those sort of big sick patients where you're having those sort of larger scale in interventions with. And I talk, and I don't, don't want to contradict myself around diagnostic burden, but uh, you know you can still get the diagnosis wrong as long as one of your differentials was on the final list, so to speak. And I think we could get that data. That would be, wouldn't it? That would that would be transformative for the ambulance service. I, I think, I think into better integration with our hospitals, our local hospitals would would just be fantastic anyway. Like it, it completely puzzles me how there isn't more systems or there, there aren't more systems rather where paramedics can get into their local ED departments, even to, you know, work as a, as an observer, as a third person there, or, or, or to have dual roles where people can cycle through ED departments because there's, there's definitely a want there. And the, the hospitals do education pretty well for, for their trainees. I'm sure there's something where you could do mutual, mutually beneficial things because trainees will, will will want pre-hospital experience obviously it's time and money and 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 i think that's probably the answer but the the benefits that you would get from better integration with with these units rather than us being seen as as enemies sometimes i think when it comes to bed weights and hospital weights absolutely well it would would reduce you know the overall burden potentially if we use that data as you know and it's aggregated data so we, we would look at a condition code for a postcode area to, to make it compliant from an IG perspective, so it would be aggregated data. But you know, yeah, it, it's it's those sorts of things, and it's not about necessarily the ambulance service or, or the, the system. It is about how we can reassure our colleagues that they're doing a good job. Because you could take ten paramedics; they all have very different conveyance rates, different risk appetites, um, different understandings. They may have different experiences of of making an error, so that they may be really fearful of gosh yeah name a disease process and and they are biased towards taking all those to hospital because something that happened to them 10 years ago vertigo Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so one of the things that that you have written down andy is that to to cover that I'd, i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on a little bit more is is avoiding baggage within within the ambulance service and within ambulance service culture yeah, so I mean, so this is all about. I mean, it, it, to some degree, it kind of um, it, it fits into what, what we were talking about around, you know, the, the sort of diagnostic certainty and, and you know, the, the baggage being that sort of that burden of of disp- a disproportionate perception of, of how how well you need to perform. And you know, if you kind of uh, challenge yourself to to do the garden path test for for every patient, um, but you can, but you can take it further. You can take it beyond that whole sort of patient empowerment bit, and and re- reassure yourself by making sure that the information you give to your patients is really accurate. I mean, we some of the complaints we deal with, and, and even some of the the feedback we do get from, from inquests is. And it's a it's a bit counterintuitive because relative to the the amount of anxiety that we see among our workforce, we we see some odd behaviours and odd things happening clinically. By no means universally, but one thing we've picked up as a bit of a trend is like this sort of false reassurance, and that may be to do with an understanding of the diseases we're dealing with. You know, overly reassuring people that that you're that you're going to be fine or you know the, the doctors you saw the doctor yesterday i think that's going to be fine you know really get un, understand that you know that there are there are other errors upstream that can be made don't fall foul of that kind of authority bias and and you know you're you are there you're the registrant you're with the patient this is your encounter so don't just import everything that the patient's told you or the notes tell you from the last encounter you know have have that new encounter because you know when these things do go to, to inquest or a, a complaint is raised um we quite often we do see this sort of strange behavior which is just that say importing the, the last clinician's opinion and we can get into the whole kind of psychology of of, of error but you know it, it, even the best doctors will will make diagnostic errors, but they've they're probably they've made sure their safety net. And the fact that there's an ambulance there is probably been part of their safety net, which is if you get worse, call an ambulance. So so there's you know, all that stuff kind of is, is the baggage. There's also baggage around you know well actually there's been a complaint or um, we're doing an investigation. SIs are a great example, um, and we've got to do better. And I think this is probably true across the whole of the NHS, and I think PSERF 
um, will hopefully improve this. And I know from my experience working with HSIB, and they, they really drove uh, some of this culture change. Being involved in a healthcare accident or healthcare error, and being therefore in part, being part of an investigation, should never be punitive. It's 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 a learning process. It must only be a learning process. And yet, when you email someone or phone someone to say, "Oh, can we meet to talk about the incident? You know, we've, we've declared an SI. You know, it'd be really good to to have your uh, your thoughts. You know, hear um hear what happened." And we still have people saying. Oh, um, can I bring my union rep? Well, you can, but you don't need to. You should be learning in, uh, things. So, so you know, it, it's people worry. They worry about stuff that yeah. hasn't even happened. They worry about complaints. They worry about SIs. They worry about inquests. There's only one way to have a miserable time at an inquest, and that's to um, to not be honest. The purpose of the inquest is to give the family answers, and and they're in the room with you. And the coroner gets angry if you. If you try and fluff your way through it, and I, 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 you know, in my role, I often have to represent my organisation, and, and I've learned that you know, do you know what? If we haven't got a policy, or if something's happened, we we just we fess up, uh, and you just have to be really honest. It's part of a process. It's not there to apportion blame, um, and investigations, you know, aren't aren't there to apportion blame. And if they if they infer blame, then the process has failed, and and that's all part of the wider system. You know the, the 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 fundamental system design, the design of the environments we work in, and that's not just ambulance design or CAD design, all the sort of the tangible stuff, the nuts and bolts that we work in. You know, we've really got to design the culture. We've got to design models of care, our strategic approach, the pledge we make to our workforce, and 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 then the individual sort of components. And it's it, it's a the, the probably the, the classic error that happened reliably and predictably causes a huge amount of anxiety is the one in 1000 error the wrong route wrong dose error but that's that's a multifactorial system design issue the the detection of the error or the 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 the, the index event yes is is the individual pushing the plunger of the syringe and, and the, 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 dr- the drug going in, into the patient but if you think about sort of sharp end and blunt end i, I always use the example of, of apollo 13 in the film where they ask whichever astronaut is it fred hayes or whichever one it is they ask him to stir the tanks completely random it could have been the other astronaut could have could have been nearest to the switch he stirs the tanks and the thing blows up and you know the rest well i'm sure you've all seen the film so no spoilers uh, but they make it home okay um <laughs> But the the reaction when the spaceship blows up is the other astronaut says, "What on earth? What did you do? Yeah. What have you done?" Gets angry with him. Well, he he flicked the switch. He didn't design the switch. He didn't design in the error that caused the explosion. That was years years in the past. Been other real world examples in 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 space flight. You know, so the Challenger disaster, the the design of the the solid rocket booster O rings. I mean, this is how nerdy is this? Sorry, but you know that that they were, that was designed by a uh, designed and built and supplied by a subcontractor who was anxious about delaying launch. You know that they weren't designed to operate at the low temperatures on the day, and you know. The, the the rest is sort of documentary. So, you know, the, the sorry, a bit, of a bit of a ramble, but the point is, you know, you 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 mustn't blame the person who detects detects the mm-hmm. system error. We need to learn from that detection, um, and that's exactly what safety science does. Um, there's there's a, a really nice model that that actually we've adopted in our organisation that I was introduced to HSIB. Uh, it's called Fair Three, and it's just a it's, it's a way of sort of working through an event. Um, and it's based a lot about avoiding judgment until you've got sufficient evidence um, to, to make a judgment. And it's not about judging the individual. It's about you know, judge, judging the process for, for, the, for the most part. Clearly, there's always got to be accountability and, uh, at, for, for certain events. But the important part of this model is that it stratifies errors viol- and violations and it splits violations into violations for organizational gain versus er- uh, violations for personal gain. And then it talks about negligence and, and sabotage because it, it's got an av- it's an aviation context. Now it's really interesting it, the definition, and it's a fairly common definition of an error is an unintended act with an unintended consequence. And I mentioned, you know, the sort of Harold Shipman, Beverly Allett type issues. You know, these are people who are way over on the other side of the accountability spectrum. These are people who are committing intentional acts with intentional consequences, and and the accountability and the consequence it has to be what it is. If you've made an error. 
the, the definition is an unintended act with an unintended consequence. When you follow the flow chart through the action of the system, the action of the, of the people who are leading the system, the, act, the first thing to do is you console the operator. That's the task. It's console the operator. We don't console the operator when people make an error. We, and we are trying really hard to do that. And that's going to be that big cultural shift. There's obviously going to be a, a, a tension with, with that approach. What we don't want is to move into a, a situation where people stop trying and they stop you know, studying and doing the CPD because they'll say, well, if I make an error, it must be the system's fault because the systems will get to a point where they are good enough and and and, and errors. You know, there's always going to be that sort of shared burden. But um, yeah, it, it, it's a really interesting point how other sectors, you know, nuclear power generation, aviation, uh, and, and other sectors do error management so much better. And another you know, bit bit of baggage. But sorry, I've uh, I've held the talking stick for too long there. Sorry, uh, Simon. Just giving a, a practical example, I mentioned earlier about my uh, two cases that went to coroners, and one of those was a, uh, a missed um, large bowel obstruction due to um, an incarcerated femoral hernia. And you were absolutely right, Andy. Basically, this person had had multiple ambulances that had all missed this, and obviously I came and I actually admitted the patient with gastroenteritis. So my diagnosis, as you said, was earlier, was wrong. But the patient subsequently died, and obviously the the inquest was about well, if they'd been admitted to hospital day one, day two, you know, day three, when I'd seen them earlier, would they have had a better outcome? And the first thing that the the consultant surgeon that spoke said was actually, I have registrars and colleagues that would miss these, and it's one thing that I've learnt from my own mistakes. I always check. The whole thing there was not punitive, it was learning. And I actually got thanked by the the family for coming and everything that we did, even though um, an error had been made. And and I think that's what we need to take from it is exactly what you just said, that actually the, 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 the learning there, what I took away from that was that I had a knowledge gap. And my knowledge gap was that I never considered incarcerated femoral hernias. I never looked in femoral offices, orifices when I did an abdominal exam. And actually, now I do, I've implied that, and I'm now a better practitioner because of that. So actually, these systems are there actually to improve patient care and safety, but also to improve us as practitioners. So there there are positives that we can take from these, as well as that feeling of dread, as you said, that we, we sometimes get. So actually, we should try and focus on it as, well, what can I take to better myself from this? It was never done deliberately. You know, I never, I never want to miss someone on a patient, but we are human, we do, the best doctors do, the best healthcare professionals do, and we need to accept that as part of our practice that none of us can know everything. Absolutely. And and, and don't forget, we're working, I mean, it, I've said before, it's an error, error-provoking environment, so there are error traps everywhere um, in what we do. And, and, and the reason for that is the, um, the hardware, well, we, we don't work with hardware, we work with liveware. So if you're um, an aircraft engineer, you know, there's only one type of oil you can put in the gearbox. If you get that wrong, the gearbox is going to seize up. And then this sort of leads me on to that great quote from Ken Catchpole, huge in, in, in sort of healthcare safety. And, and he, he talks about the difference between, you know, in terms of aviation, the difference between, uh, you know, an aircraft and, and a human being. And, you know, he says that, um, and I, I don't want to uh, misquote him, so I hope it gets right. But, you know, the, uh, um, an aircraft is predictable and, and deterministic and human beings are not predictable and deterministic so that, so they can have the same diseases the same pathology but they may they may have a different clinical course they you know it may affect some patients uh, worse than others you know so you can you can guarantee that if if a plane runs out of fuel it the engines will stop and eventually it'll have to come down to earth so it, you know it, you can you can determine the outcome and you, and you can predict the 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 problem you're going to have using the, the one in one thousand adrenaline error as an example you know you can i think i don't know what the percentage there are a percentage of the population who are more sensitive to adrenaline than others so you could spend your whole career making that error and actually never cause a problem other than maybe a little bit of tachycardia or something but you know another patient may have a, a an extreme reaction um, to that era, and there are other other drugs that you could you could use as an example, or other interventions. The, the only things that are, that are, you could say, and it's probably a bit contentious. Um, you know, the only thing that is 
predictable and deterministic are things like you know in, intubation errors, soft intubations, or failure to detect you know tube tube displacement. And and so we we worry about as a profession you know the withdrawal of that skill, but the system we work in is isn't sufficiently robust to allow that skill to continue because we can't we can't maintain the skill the there's not enough exposure and there's not enough patients to go around for paramedics to to have those um those experiences because you know we're generalists and you know so they, they, there's there's an awful lot to that but you know the, the point around d- determinism and and predictability i think is really important when we think about you know like your example simon around you know the specific diagnosis that a string of people have missed if if it was a machine you could very objectively say well we've looked in the gearbox we've looked at the drive shaft we've looked at we've tested the fuel oh, actually the fuel's wrong you know, we've put diesel in rather than petrol we can we can do equivalent things uh, blood results are on a, a bell curve some, some patients have an odd baseline you know uh, it, it, in the presence of other diseases they have pathophysiological derangement you know they, so when they get something acute it's it's just not as easy to predict you know helicopters don't get don't have comorbidities i'm in the i suppose fortunate or unfortunate position depending on which way you look at it where uh, I'm, I'm working in a role now where i can make clinical and aviation errors so there's uh, the, there's there's double a chance for uh, for for screwing up but um obviously do you fly your own HEMS helicopter, do you? Uh, so I don't, but I occasionally sit in the front seat and they ask me to do things. So so but part of my role is is acting as a helicopter technical crew member, which is a, a, a supportive aviation role. Uh, and I was involved in an investigation for an aviation error very recently. And coming back to your to the original point, which is these should be really supportive investigations, almost as proof that it can be done right. What was this error I was involved in recently? And it was genuinely one of, it was really uncomfortable because no one likes in, taking a hard look at themselves and being, you know, you know being um, involved in, in mistakes and errors. But it was genuinely one of the most positive experiences I've been involved in. And it has made me so much better at my job that you know it, it can be done really well and uh and it can feel really good afterwards if you see what i mean i know that sounds counterintuitive but yeah uh, well, and, no, well and, and it, it kind of is until you let it sink in you know what it, what it actually means and and interestingly at the hsib take their methodology uh, from the air accident investigation branch and we that they often don't get to speak to the people it's really sad sad reality in aviation accidents although more more aviation accidents are survival than, than you think but often in, in fatal accidents obviously they only get cockpit voice recorders in healthcare they always get to, the investigators always get to speak to the the pilots or the the, the equivalent um, and so they become really important and I, and I learned you know the the value of of speaking to the person that was actually there when it happened you know the cases that I was involved with in my two years with the branch and you know, the two fantastic years I had learned a huge amount and and the point was the learning and and talking to doctors nurses therapists all the people you know the various roles and paramedics um, that I interviewed and, and worked with on, on various investigations and telling them how clear how how important how valuable their testimony is in an investigation and how how they describe their work and this this is so important how they describe the work they do turning that into a recommendation to to change the kind of the reality of work and you know in a lot of sectors and i think the ambulance service possibly is true of this our, our colleagues are judged based on the, the notion that if you've seen um, Stephen Shorrock's work on sort of workers prescribed, workers imagined, uh, work, workers disclosed, workers done, we we prescribe work without context and expect our our colleagues to do to do that as prescribed. Well, you know, we talk about violations. There are necessary violations. There are routine violations. So you know, you've all seen the photographs of the path that goes down and then takes a a ninety degree turn, and actually the the grass is trodden away at forty five degrees. Because actually, to know who wants to walk the extra distance, so people make their own path. You know, that's a, a violation. Uh, so we've got to start listening to staff and make the workers done, the workers prescribed, because then you, you're creating, you are creating a better system. You're you letting the end user design the system. You create that intrinsic motivation, and you uh, you have that kind of that buy-in. 
to sort of to, to bring it all together we we've got to have a louder voice staff have got to have a louder voice paramedics have got to have a louder voice in influencing the system they work in they've got to understand their their role they've got to understand the realities of of work you know what, what's termed as the messy reality of work and in clinical practice it's not deterministic it's often not predictable it's it's messy um but we always do our best the the, the question i always ask and it is a slightly it's often sort of rhetorical in some ways or maybe comes across as pithy but when i when i speak to staff who've been involved in accidents um is um i say do you, did you come to work today to, to do a good job of course they do and that's that's the joy paramount that's the joy for me as a, as a system leader so to speak is i know that everyone who comes to work that's come to work to do a good job and the people that don't come up so infrequently it, it's you'd almost sort of consider it a denote you know a, a de minimis risk it's you know so many decimal points away from being even one percent of our population we don't need to worry about those people you know we'll find them <laughs> the, the the workforce our paramedics and, and all our other clinical grades and other professions that work will work alongside us they come to work to do a good job our job is to make their job as enjoyable as possible get rid of the baggage and, and let them let them experience the joy of, of providing care for for our population completely agree andy and and that's been such an interesting conversation i think that's a really nice high for us to end on we're we're getting towards the end of our time and i'm, I'm keen not to overrun uh too much of an hour if, if we can so i guess finally andy th- th- this was about it was about errors and i think we really examined some of those points we've examined error in investigation and how it occurs just really quickly would you like to summarize sort of your, your final take-home points particularly for staying safe and and some takeaway attitudes from from our conversation yeah absolutely so i guess none of us are islands it's probably a slightly overstated thing in the book, but I talk about autonomy. I challenge autonomy. Now, of course, we're all autonomous, and it's crazy to say we're not. But I challenge the the semantic bit or, or the definition of autonomy. You know, around you know, not not having any rules and being completely detached from a system. We we are we are a system. Don't think that you have to do everything yourself and take the entire burden yourself. You can share your decisions with the patient. In fact. We encourage it. The literature demonstrates that it's a good thing. So sharing decisions with with patients, families, carers, joint decision-making or sort of professional shared decision-making, when we we try and define it differently or to just say there's some differentiation, but joint decision-making with a peer or a senior is a really, really good thing to do. You're taking someone who is removed from the the scenario. You know, it just helps validate. It's, It's not an admission of failure. It, it, it's an area of growth for you. Um, you'll, you'll always learn from those from those experiences. It's not admitting defeat. It's you know I've got to my capability line. I want to explore further. What, how can we make this patient encounter the, the best it can be? Uh, and then you know my other wrap up points, the takeaway points are, are just hopefully what I've threaded throughout this evening, which is being a paramedic is brilliant. There's nothing like it. If we could just cut away all of that baggage broaden that cognitive bandwidth just you know in enjoy what it is without unnecessarily worrying obviously a little bit of worry humans need a little bit of a uh, little bit of adrenaline a little bit of cortisol flowing to keep us sharp but um yeah it, don't don't lose sleep over it i cannot agree more with that it, it truly is the best job in the world and yeah it, people we, we we've we've all got a part to play in in bringing that enjoyment back to it isn't it and and uh and and changing the culture and you don't have to be a manager to do that people at the forefront need to be leading this and we've all got our part to play brilliant well i think that's a lovely point to wrap up on andy thank you so much for for joining us for this chat that's been that's been really really beneficial i've really enjoyed it do you can you just say the the name of your book again because i I think you expand a lot on on some of the points we've made yeah, so it's called Decision Making in Paramedic Practice. We're just coming to the end of a review for a, a, a revision, so there'll be a, a new version available soon. I think some people have got a an early version electronically, but that's got some some more points 
hopefully will be of, of interest to uh, to people. But yeah, but the the current version is um, out currently uh, with with Class Publishing. But thank you for allowing me to uh, to mention that. So it's, it's a great read. I, I highly recommend it for. Uh, just covering everything professional practice and if you if you want the kind of inspiration and the evidence base to practice comfortably practice safely and feel supported in your decision making it is the book to read and i i can't uh, it's a brilliant book andy that's all i can say is um yeah i, I really recommend it to students because uh yeah it just um even me who i felt quite comfortable with my practice it just gave me a this makes sense. This is this is how I want to practice. Thank so, you. Uh, yeah. The check's in the post. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again to Andy for letting us pick his brain for an hour. And thanks to those of you that are listening. And um, we hope you enjoyed it. Join us for the next one.